remain standing and pray with me. Oh, Father, we pray that you would come and inhabit the praise of your people this morning. And in particular, Lord, I ask that you would take my feeble attempt to understand your revelation in Isaiah and my feeble attempt to explain that here to your people. I pray that you would inhabit it, that you would bless it, that you would make it become alive for your people as the very word of God communicated to them for their life and for their good and for their well-being. And so we commend ourselves to you this morning and to your word. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Um, Please uh, turn with me to our Old Testament lesson from Isaiah chapter 43. Um, Forgive me if I feel rushed. I have a lot that I want to say about this passage. It is so rich. And so I put on your seatbelts, buckle up. We're going to go on a journey uh, through Isaiah chapter 43 this morning. Today is the fifth and final Sunday in the season of Lent. This Sunday has traditionally in the West been known as Passion Sunday or called as Passion Sunday. And it begins a two-week period including Holy Week known as Passion Tide or by others as Passion Time. And the focus of these two weeks concentrates upon the passion and death but they're not very creative in the language, right? The passion time. It focuses on the passion and the death of Christ. Uh, and that ultimately climaxes in that, that Easter Sunday in the resurrection of Jesus. Set within the broad overarching framework of scripture, our reading from Isaiah chapter 43 looks forward to the cross. When God declares in Isaiah 43 verse 19, Behold, I am doing a new thing, a new thing, He is referring ultimately to the cross of Christ. And that is what we'll look into. That's what we'll look into this morning. That new thing that God promised to do here in Isaiah chapter 43 and that he accomplished through Jesus taking on human flesh and dying on the cross. What we ourselves in the year, in the Christian year, are journeying to right now, to the cross of Jesus, to Good Friday. And in particular, we'll look at four aspects of Isaiah chapter 43 that help us to see and understand the cross of Jesus as the key, as the key to the problem that has plagued our world since Genesis chapter 3, namely the authority of the devil and the fallen powers of evil and darkness in this world. This passage helps us, gives us a lens to see the cross, to set it within the broader framework of God's ongoing story revealed in Scripture, to see that it addresses the primary issue, the authority of the devil and the fallen powers in this world. First, in Isaiah 43, it acknowledges, Isaiah 43 acknowledges the problem that God's rule over the earth is contested. We know this intuitively. We experience a world where God's rule, his his desire, his purposes for life and flourishing under his gracious and loving care and rule is is contested in this world. We know that. Just look at Isaiah chapter 43 verse 9. This is a little bit before our, um, our reading this morning. All the nations gather together and all the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them, now God here, when he says them, he's referring to the pagan gods of the nations. Let these pagan gods bring their witnesses, that is, those nations that worship them. Let them bring those witnesses to prove them right. And let them hear, let those idols, those false gods, hear and say it is true. Of course, God is speaking somewhat tongue-in-cheek here. 
all throughout Isaiah, over and over again, we know that these idols are nothing. They, they cannot hear. They cannot speak. The context here is that of a legal proceeding. God is, God is himself on trial. He claims that he alone is God, the creator God, but is accused of lying. In this larger context of Isaiah here in this portion of the book, his rivals, the pagan gods, have as their witnesses the many people and nations who worship them. God's claim to this world as its creator is contested by these pagan gods. Yet we know from Isaiah and throughout scripture that these idols are nothing but wood and metal fashioned by human hands. However, Scripture does hold up the fearsome possibility and likelihood that these foreign pagan gods were in fact demons in disguise. As Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 clearly states. And here he is actually drawing upon Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 32. When Paul says here, what do I imply then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons. These demons are deceivers, mockingly assuming the true God's place among the deceived individuals and nations of the world. But they're counterfeits, and they try to install counterfeits in our lives and in the lives of our nations in this world. These deceiving demons work in concert with the chief deceiver, whom the Bible identifies throughout as the Satan or the devil, Together, these figures comprise what Paul identifies in Ephesians chapter 6 as, quote, the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers of this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. These dark, evil forces have real power, real power and real authority in this world. Just remember back to our gospel lesson from Luke chapter 4, that kicked off Lent for us, from our first week of Lent. In that passage, the devil tempts Jesus in the wilderness by showing him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment and saying this to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me. It has been delivered to me. The devil's not lying here when he says that all authority has been delivered to him. Even in John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus identifies the devil as, as what? The ruler of this world. He has real authority, real power in this world. The devil, though, does not possess this authority in himself. It is not intrinsic to him, intrinsic to his being. It's not his by nature. This authority was delivered to him. It was given to him. He does not own it or possess it. It is not his from his very nature. But who delivered him this, this power? Who delivered him this authority? Well, we did. Humans did. God created humans to be angled mirrors, to gather in and draw out of creation all its wondrous awe and praise of its maker, of its creator, and to reflect it back to him in worship. Exactly what we're doing here right now this morning. And God also made us so that when we do this, this worship thing that we're doing right now, that when we do this, we will be shaped more fully into his image so that we can move out into this world, bringing with us the characteristics of God. Wisdom, love, joy, virtue, holiness, justice. Bringing it into our homes and our city and our community. 
And in doing so, we bring this world, this earth, closer into alignment with the kingdom of heaven. However, as you know the story, humans rebelled. We chose to worship something other than the creator God. That is, we chose to give our deepest affection and our highest loyalty to something other than God, the creator, the king of heaven and earth. We chose to worship something other than the one who made us for himself. And when we give our worship to a thing, when we give our worship to a thing, it draws in from us our authority, our power. For example, money as a tool is good, and it can bring about good in this world. But when it's worshipped, when it has our highest loyalty, when it has our deepest affection, it becomes a cruel master. Right? It takes our power, our authority from us that God has given us as his image bears, and it subjects us to itself, like all idols do. So when humans rebelled and chose to worship the creature rather than the creator, we chose to give our God-given authority as God's image in this world away to an interloper, to the great deceiving serpent, the devil. Humans delivered to the devil the authority God gave us over creation, authority we were to use to shepherd's creation praise back to its maker. As a result, the devil and these fallen powers used this authority to redirect our worship away from the creator in an attempt to thwart his purposes on this earth. At all costs, they do not want to see God's creational designs and plans come into fruition in this world. This world is contested territory, contested territory. The devil and these fallen powers challenge God's claim by drawing away human worship. And in the midst of this world as contested territory, a practical question arises, and it does so here in Isaiah 43. Is God able, is the creator God able and willing to overthrow the devil and these fallen powers? This leads us to the second aspect of Isaiah 43 that helps us to understand the cross as the key to solving the problem of the devil's authority and the world as contested territory. Second, God is the true king, the true king of this world, who is able to crush the enemy, the enemy that held Israel captive and that held this world captive to sin and death. That enemy is not invincible. God is the true king of this world. His authority is intrinsic to himself. He possesses it in his very being. Look at Isaiah 43, verses 14 through 15. This is what we heard read for us this morning. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. The enemy of God's people here is the nation of Babylon. Babylon was a real historical nation, yet behind the scenes of this ancient nation, the fallen powers of this present evil age were at work to thwart the purposes of God. And throughout the biblical story, nations are at work, and these fallen powers through them are at work to distort God's purposes by trying to lead away and lead lead astray God's people, or to crush them 
As in, as, in, as in the book of Exodus, when Pharaoh is seeking to destroy the people and bring them into heel. Even though these, this people, this, these descendants of Abraham are the very ones through whom God's blessing will come into the world. Likewise here, Babylon poses a threat to God's people. The ones through whom his purposes for this world will come about. Yet in these two short verses, Babylon, the nation, and the fallen powers of evil behind it are framed. Like they're literarily framed, sandwiched between God. And they are diminished by the greater reality of Israel's God that we see portrayed here. Of our God, the Lord, the Holy One, the Redeemer, the Creator, the King. As these terms strike our ears, we are powerfully reminded of all that we know about God and his commitment to his people, to Israel here in Isaiah, and to the church, to us now. While God's claim to this earth is contested by the devil and these fallen powers who seek to overthrow his purposes for this world, we are encouraged here not to lose sight of his absolute sovereignty, his absolute sovereignty over all things. Ancient Babylon and these fallen powers are certainly a terrible reality, but the greater reality by far is God, the true king over creation. Okay, so remember what we're doing here. I don't want us to lose track of what we're, what we're, where we're going. We want to see how Isaiah chapter 43 shapes our understanding of the cross of Jesus. We haven't really talked about the cross yet. We want to see how this shapes our understanding of the cross of Jesus as that new thing that God is doing, that new redemptive and creative thing that God promised to do through his prophet Isaiah. So far, we have seen that this world is contested territory. The devil and the fallen powers operate to thwart God's purposes in this world with the authority and power that humanity was given as God's image to do what he had called them to do. Yet God, the true king, is far greater than these fallen powers. He possesses ultimate authority and power in himself in his very being. And this brings us to the third aspect of this passage. God, the true king. God, the true king, promises to do something new. Something so beautiful and amazing and unexpected that it far outstrips the reality of the memory of his past acts of creation and redemption. It's quite amazing because all throughout the Old Testament, you have, you have the, the writers, the prophets reminding people of what God has done in the past. Yet here, he says, forget all that. I'm doing a new thing. Look at verses 16 through 19. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. That's language of his victory over creation uh, in his in his establishment of creation. It's also language that harkens back with what follows to the Exodus. Who makes a path, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. What is God saying here? What is God saying here? He is saying, do not allow the memory of my past acts of redemption to restrict your vision of this new thing that I'm about to do. It is beyond anything I have done so far, beyond anything you could ever imagine. 
And so what's this new thing then that God is about to do? God, the true king, is coming. That's Isaiah's claim. God says it. I am coming to make a way. The true king is coming to lead his people out of their captivity and bring them into creation. As we know from the Gospels, they had no idea this meant that God was going to take on human flesh. They could not see and understand this new thing that would happen. It was beyond their imagining. But God, the true king, comes to lead his people out of captivity and to bring them into a new creation. I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Remember what we looked at that first Sunday in Lent. Scripture views the wilderness as a place where God's rule is contested. It represents a part of this world that resists life and flourishing. And that's why God leads his people there to test them. Will you trust me even in the midst of this place that is against me? This place that's resisting my life, my rule, this creational, this understanding of that God's love would overflow into all creation and that this entire world would become this verdant paradise. This new thing that God is about to do involves the completion of his work to bring all the earth under his loving, life-giving rule. That means even wildernesses, even deserts, so that every square inch of planet earth is marked by divine flourishing whether human or non-human. This work will necessarily involve stripping the devil and the fallen powers of their authority and power and restoring humans to their God-ordained place as his image within this creation-wide kingdom of his. The results of this new thing leads us to this fourth, the fourth and final aspect of this passage that helps us to see how to understand the cross the cross of Jesus, within the broad overarching story of creation revealed for us in Holy Scripture. Fourth, this new thing that God is about to do results in humans, results in humans, you and I, restored as God's image with our God-given authority to gather up the praise of creation to offer it in worship to God. Listen to verses 20 and 21. The wild beast will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. I will give my, I will sustain my people in essence. The people whom I have formed for myself, my image bearers, that they might do what? What's the ultimate purpose of this new thing? So that they might declare my praise. Notice this. The wild beast will honor when God's specially chosen people, restored by him, offer praise. The wild beast will honor. They will literally, they will glorify, they will give glory to God for this work of restoring his people. This is nothing other than God restoring and enabling humans to live as his image, as his priest kings in creation to shepherd the praise of his creatures in worship of him. What we were always intended to do, and even far beyond that, from Genesis onward. This is Isaiah's way of looking forward to the new creation when God will set all things to rights. Okay. I'm draw us. I know that's a lot. I know I've been going at a, a speed here. So now we're in a place to allow Isaiah 43 to shape how we see and understand the cross. We have those four things in place. 
This is our understanding. This is what Isaiah gives us of the cross. The cross is about God overthrowing the devil and restoring humans so that we can fulfill our God-given role in creation to steward this world with, it, with the wisdom and love of God, shepherding and directing the praise of creation back to God. So let's begin, as we, as we kind of end and wrap this sermon up, let's begin where we did at the beginning of Lent, with Jesus being tempted by the devil in the wilderness. Remember the devil possessed all earthly authority and tempted Jesus with it, among other things there. Jesus entered that wilderness as the rightful king of creation. He's coming, declaring what? The kingdom of God is at hand. The king is coming, declaring his kingdom. Jesus enters that wilderness as the rightful king of creation, returning to do battle with the devil to free his people and creation from their captivity to the devil, sin, and death, and to make a way in the wilderness to divine life and flourishing. It's no accident that he's in the wilderness. King Jesus wins this initial skirmish in the wilderness. He enters the strong man's house. You know this the parable, he enters the strong man's house where the devil is the ruler and he binds him up so that throughout his ministry, leading ultimately to the cross, Jesus is plundering the devil's house. He's plundering the devil's house with every miracle, with every healing, with every act of forgiveness, with every act of love, with every act of freeing someone from demonic bondage. Jesus, the true and rightful king, is plundering the devil's house. In every one of the Gospels, Jesus is presented as the returning king, the redeemer, the creator, the holy one of Israel, the Lord. And with him, he brings his kingdom defined by his wisdom and sacrificial love. When he comes into the world, he faces those dark forces that have always stood behind human antagonism towards God. He confronts those dark forces that have taken up residence in his creation and as you read the Gospels, and I pray that you read the Gospels as we prepare ourselves to come to the Holy Week. Read them. And as you will, you'll, you will note that the hostility just builds as the Gospel moves along. The hostility towards Jesus and these forces embodied, uh, embodied in the Pharisees and the scribes and religious rulers and directly by these demonic forces. It builds. It's building. It's coming to a head there at the cross. And in each of the Gospels, by the time we come to the cross over and over again, we've been told that the devil, the prince of darkness, is in charge of the world. Jesus says as much in John 14 when he says, Now the ruler of this world is coming for me. The cross will be, and see it as this, the cross will be the showdown between King Jesus and the dark usurper, the devil. On the cross, Jesus will break, and we'll see this on Good Friday, Jesus will break the devil's grip on this world. On the cross, Jesus will dethrone the devil and will enthrone himself as the rightful king of heaven and earth. So that finally, at the end of the Gospels, Jesus can declare what? At the end of Matthew chapter 28, all authority has been given to me. He has won it back for us. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So now listen to how Paul can sum up the cross then in Colossians chapter 2. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, 
God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the, to the cross. And most of us, I think, our view, view of the cross ends right there. It stops right there. Listen, Paul continues on. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He's talking about those principalities and powers, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers of, of darkness and spiritual forces of evil. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. He stripped them bare by triumphing over them in the cross. Paul's irony there. The one who was stripped bare, stripped them bare. Love it. As the second Adam, Jesus restores humans, you and I, to our God-ordained place as his image in this world. You and I have been restored because of Jesus' work on the cross to our place of authority under the loving and life-giving rule of God. In Jesus, God is restoring us as his image. That means he has equipped us with authority and power emanating from King Jesus through his spirit that we might shepherd again, again, that we might shepherd the praise of creation to him. And by spreading the life-giving aroma of God throughout the city, excuse me, and so that through our worship of the triune God, he will be at work in us through his spirit to form us and shape us more and more into his divine image revealed to us in Jesus so that we will go from here into our homes and neighborhoods, into our workplaces and this city to spread the aroma of God, his love and goodness, his truth and beauty throughout this, this city, this county, wherever you live. And by spreading the life-giving aroma of God throughout this city and in our neighborhoods, we begin to gather the praise of God's creation. That's who we are. It's not just our role or our vocation. It's who we are by God's decree, by his creation. We gather creation's praise through our vocations, whether in the home or in the workplaces, by inviting others to offer their praise to God who freed us in Jesus from our captivity and freed them as well, who has remade and refashioned us in his image anew. So this Passion Tide, as we journey to the cross, as we journey to the cross, ask God in fervent prayer, ask God in fervent prayer to help you to see how to gather up the praise of his creation in your life, how to invite those around you to join with you in praising our creator. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.